everybody has a topic on the exam that they really just don't like. Whether it's hand therapy or psych or neuropeds, whatever it is, everybody's got a kryptonite. Well, I've got your secret weapon. If you're enjoying the podcast, I've been putting out video courses called 450 Formula. They're designed to make these giant, complex, difficult topics as simple and easy as possible, just like the podcast. You get all the big ideas, the foundational information, and you walk away with simple, easy mnemonics that make remembering everything a breeze. So if you're looking for a little extra help on those big, bad topics, or you just want to knock them all out together, then head over to 450formula.com and take a look. There's some free videos we can get a good feel for how it works. Check it out and get your 450. Hang in there. Hey, welcome back to the OT Exam Prepper Podcast with me, Miles. And today we're actually welcoming somebody else on the show, so you won't have to just listen to my voice drone on and on. We're talking to Kim from TMPOT, the missing piece OT. Kim helps people in a study group sessions uh, prepare for the exam. She is incredibly knowledgeable and an amazing resource, as you're about to find out. And we are using her to tackle one of the most horrible subjects. That's right. It's haunted your dreams, therapeutic models, and frames of reference. So I wish I'd had this resource ages ago, years ago, when I was my first semester in school. But anyway, it's here now, and uh, we're going to get to it. So let's do it. As always, there is a study guide that goes along with this episode. You can find it on the website, otexamprepper.com, by subscribing to the email list. If you're already subscribed, check your inbox. It's waiting for you. All right, let's do it. Hey, Kim. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful, just working. <laughs> well, good. Welcome to the OT Exam Prepper podcast, Kim. You're the first person I've ever had on this show other than myself. It is such an honor to be here. <laughs> You're too nice. What's going on <laughs> with you lately? Nothing much. I'm definitely just conducting all of my group therapy, I mean, my group tutoring sessions and I'm a pediatric OT, so I'm practicing every day. So just, you know, working and trying to help as many people as possible. My only experience with pediatrics was in school. We had like a community client is what we called it. So I had one kid and he was like the easiest, nicest kid. He was obsessed with raccoons, ninjas, and Abraham Lincoln. He was like the most adorable little guy ever. He was so easy. And everybody else got these like really challenging little monsters. And I got this easy kid. You never so. know what you're gonna get, but they're all so cute. <laughs> well, so uh, will you? How about you introduce yourself a little bit? Like, what do you do? You're in this kind of OT and uh, NBCOT exam prep world. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I've been a tutor for about four years now. I've been in OT for about ten years. I graduated in 2010. And when I first sat for the exam, I didn't pass. I received a 431 and I literally just had no clue. Like why, like I had no clue why I didn't pass. I did everything that my program instructed me to do. You know, I used therapy ed. Um, so when I sat for my exam the second time, I really didn't know how to prepare. So I just reread therapy ed and I did the best that I could. Unfortunately, you know, I passed the second time with a 450, but there was always this daunting feeling like, oh my God, I was one question away or like one point away from not passing. So that kind of 
led me um, or that was the impetus to me wanting to become a tutor. So I tutored for a few years with another company and then um, I kind of had some, you know, I had different ideas and I really wanted to give students the ability to have like a lot of support, like an entire month of support versus just one hour of support. And I wanted it to be affordable and I just wanted to be able to reach the masses. And that's <laughs> came up with, you know, the missing piece of tea. Awesome. Wait, you passed with a 450 on the nose? 450 on the dot. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? And a pass is a pass, but... Oh, totally. No, right? I think anybody who's taken it Right, it's that, kind yeah. of scary because I could have been sitting for, you know, my third attempt, you totally. know, it's one question or one, you know, technique, you know, away from sitting again. So, yeah, that's how I kind of that's like my model and like the mission behind my company is to provide as many strategies and techniques as possible because a lot of students just don't know what to do or don't know where to go once they don't pass. So I think pretty much everybody studying for the exam knows exactly what you're talking right? about. So, (laughs) so, um, today, and I'm like super pumped about this. So we're going to be talking about like models and frames of reference. And the history behind this is that like two, maybe two or three months ago, I attempted to do an episode on this and I completely failed. Like I tried to get just things, my like ducks in a row and like get all my information in one place. And I literally couldn't do it. And half of it was because it's just like hard to find and it's a daunting subject. And the other half is I just hate it. Like I just really, the subject is just so big. And even throughout school, it's just been so difficult to like narrow it down and really make it like digestible or like even applicable. So it's just one of those things that I know I really almost resented even having to study in school and for the exam. And uh, it was just really aggravating and frustrating and so I'm just really happy to have you to help out with this whole thing and I believe a lot of students feel the same way you know the tricky thing about models and frames of references is that they all have the same goal in mind right so they all want to help improve independence participation right optimal performance but they all start to sound alike exactly so you have to build those key differences and usually that key difference comes from um, the theory behind the model you know so we can pinpoint the theory behind the model it makes it a lot simpler now I don't know if it's ever easy to just be able to pull them out but you can definitely make it simple cool well that's our goal today is to give make them make them simple and then also make it simple to remember so Hopefully, by the end, we'll have taken kind of some of the main models and frames of reference here and at least got them down to something that people can can interact with and hopefully remember. Okay. So, cool. Well, so, Kim, um, why don't you go ahead and start us off? So, I think we're going to start. So, actually, so when you kind of gave me the, the brief about what we're going to be talking about, um, there's like a difference between models and frames of reference. Yeah. Is there like a like a... How would you describe that difference? Is there like a a meaningful difference between them? So, yeah. So when I think about our um, occupation based models, the models are more they're more like than different. okay? but they each focus on that PEO triad. Right. So they all focus on the person, the environment and the occupation. And it's all about like occupation based activities and intervention versus the frame of reference really looks at specific disabilities 
that cause problems with occupational performance. Cool. So that's that makes the sense. biggest difference. So models like a general mindset about practice in general, and then mm -hmm. a frame of reference is like a specific way to address a certain it's thing you're dealing with. Disabilities, right? So yeah. when you have the sensory, um, like when you think about the sensory integration frame of reference, right, is addressing specific sensory needs, or you think about the cognitive, right, a cognitive disability frame of reference is looking at a specific disability versus when I look at the MOHO or the PEO, those occupation-based models, it looks at all types of disabilities, right, but just more so it looks at the ability to engage and participate in occupation. Totally. Okay, cool. Well, let's, uh, so we won't be covering every single model and frame of reference in the world because that would be impossible. <laughs> and it would take like, forever. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're going to be focusing on the main, like the, the ones that are definitely going to, like if they're going to be, if you're going to find these on the exam or in practice, these are the ones that are going to be the most likely to show up. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So um, we're going to be talking about four different models. And then I think, is it three frames of reference? Uh -huh. Looks like it. Okay. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, so if you're up for it, you want to hit us off with uh, PEO and then MOHO and then EHP and OA? Yeah. So when I think about the PEO, right, I think most students are able to conceptualize that we're looking at the person, the environment, and the occupation, right? And the problem with only sticking to that concept is that they all look at the person, the environment, and the occupation, that PEO triad. <laughs> you know, so with PEO, I think it's really important to understand when I'm looking for an answer or I'm looking at a situation that's going to encompass the PEO, I need to see where the person is talked about. So maybe if it's a kid in a school setting, they're writing about something that person is motivated about. I need to see the environment mentioned. So maybe a non-distracting environment or maybe the chair is the appropriate size. And I need to see the occupation mentioned, which would be, let's say, handwriting. So I need to see the kid with a pencil grip or adaptive paper, you know. So I need to actually see and be able to underline or highlight all three of those components in the answer or the scenario. Gotcha. Okay. So I think PEO, like you said, is kind of like the base, like vanilla model, so to speak, right? Like this is the one that is most likely all the others are like to sound like it because it's sort of like the general foundation for every, all the other, you know, just like OT in general. Right. Know? Right. So again, you like to have needed, we need that person, environment, occupation, and that's the name of the model. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be giving mnemonics for each of these. But PEO is so kind of straightforward and, again, general, and its name is exactly what it is, that it's its own mnemonic. So, again, PEO, person, environment, occupation, if we see a mention of all three of those things, then we can feel pretty good that that's kind of leaning towards PEO, right? Right, right. Okay. Cool. All right, so that's PEO. I think that's the one that at least I in school and during the test felt pretty confident about. Mm -hmm. But it's everything else that was, like, a little trickier. <laughs> right. So uh, let's do a, does MOHO work for you? Yeah. So MOHO is, you know, one of the so that's models, model of human occupation, right? Right. The model yeah. of human occupation. And again, model of human occupation, right? Very vague, very general, very broad, right? So occupation <laughs> in general is just a broad, you know, topic. So with MOHO, we're really trying to focus on our clients' motivation, their behavior, right? and their performance because the model suggests that if a client is motivated to engage if a client is um 
you know, motivated to participate or something is very meaningful to them, that we're going to get a better performance because motivation and performance are interconnected or are related, right? Because if we're really happy to do something, then we're going to do it, right? We're going to put our best foot forward. <laughs> so at least, you know, we try. So that's what MOHO really looks at. And they have these different, um, these different like key points like volition, you know, and habituation and then their performance capacity. So that's really what the MOHO is. It's all about that person's motivation to participate. Cool. I'm just laughing because that was exactly the problem I ran into trying to make this same episode like a month right? ago. It's like I am I have no motivation whatsoever regarding right. this. Like I right. just don't care. But it's so interesting that you say that, Miles, because that's literally why EHP or the ecology of human performance model was developed. Because they knew that just because you're motivated to do something doesn't mean you have the means or the resources or you're in an appropriate environment to do it. Totally. Totally. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be doing, um, so the mnemonic for each one, it's actually going to be based on da -da -da, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> which I considered to be, so a little backstory when I was making like my mnemonic for, like that dealt with Star Wars or a mnemonic that dealt with other like characters of things. Like I had like three stories that I felt were like universal enough to be like specific characters can be used, right? It was like Star Wars, and then the another one is Lord of the Rings, and it just so happens that Kim here has never seen it, <laughs> <laughs> which sort of breaks my heart, but that's okay. Um, but we're gonna be using Lord of the Rings, and it's okay if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings either. This will still work for you because Lord of the Rings was um, has been used as sort of like the foundation for a lot of just like fantasy stories in general. So some of the things that are just common to like the Lord of the Rings story, if you're familiar with like any story that involves like elves or swords or magic or any of that stuff, this will probably sound familiar. There'll be a few that are a little more specific, but this one should work. So for MOHO, Model of Human Occupation, again, it starts with an M. We're going to be comparing the models to like some of the major like races of people in The Lord of the Rings and other like fantasy stories. So MOHO, M, is for men. So just humans, humans in these stories. So again, MOHO is all about motivation and volition and just like your intent to be able to do something. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we're thinking about men because compared to elves or dwarves or some of the other like main characters in these stories, men are notoriously short lived. So like the 60, 70, 80 years that human beings typically live pales in comparison to like elves who live for like thousands of years or elves who or dwarves who live for like hundreds of years. So because of that, men feel a little more motivated to like get things done. So whereas the elves are like, we'll wait and see for another 200 years, men are like, I'm going to be dead in half that time. So like, no, we have to do something right now. So men are the most motivated, the most ambitious, the most industrious, and then also kind of like the most indiv individualistic of all these things, um, of all the races. So again, moho, we're going to think of men. And again, this idea of like being motivated, being driven, um, being really invested in what you're doing. Okay. Do you want to hit us up with EHP? Sounds good. So, yeah. So, EHP, and again, I, I noted a few minutes ago how, you know, the MOHO theory kind of says, like, oh, if you're motivated to do something, right, it kind of helps your performance, which it does. But the theorists who came up with EHP, they said, wait a minute. We have a lot of clients who are motivated 
to do things and to participate, but they still encounter limitations within the environment, right? So, you know, when you were trying to make the podcast for the frames of reference, you know, you were super motivated to do it, but you still came, you know, you still kind of encounter this, this, this stop, this pause, because you're like, wait a minute, maybe I don't have the books, right, to really understand <laughs> the concept, like something limited your ability to move forward, even though you were motivated. So that's EHP, right? So the, the bigger concept that I always remember what EHP is, we're adapting, we're restoring, we're establishing, we're changing things in the environment, we're changing things about the task so that you can be successful in that environment, right? So when we use the same example of you trying to come up with this podcast, right? So I'm going to maybe establish your understanding a little bit more. I'm going to help you understand the different frames of reference so you can be independent when you're trying to facilitate or record your podcast, right? Or maybe I'm going to adapt, you know, adapt a little bit so that you can be successful when trying to record your podcast. So I really want to see an emphasis in this scenario or in the answer that says I'm working on adapting the person or the occupation or the environment, that PEO triad. I can change any of those, but the purpose of me changing those is for me to be successful in whatever environment that I'm in. So that's what EHP, you really want to see the environment mentioned. And that environment or that context can be anything, home, school, a specific activity, whatever it is. Okay. So definitely like an emphasis on the environment as like, so again, so again, like all the PEO stuff is still relevant, but if you see a specific emphasis on things about the environment, then we're leaning towards EHP. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So for EHP, again, ecology of human performance, Again, so Moho was started with M. We went with men. EHP, we're thinking E. We were going to go with elves. So again, elves are another one of these really common um, fantasy races. And especially in the Lord of the Rings, they live in the woods. They have these like crazy wooden houses that are like built into the trees or whatever. Um, they're very, very environmentally conscious. So they're like one with the environment. They're just they they love nature. So we're going to remember EHP, elves, and environment. And then, because it's kind of added bonus, so there are five steps that you mentioned a bit, Kim, mm -hmm. that um, are specifically sort of listed as typical EHP approaches to adapting the environment or, or approaching um, intervention. And so those are alter, create, adapt, prevent, and establish and restore. Mm -hmm. So... Alter, create, adapt, prevent, establish. Those, um, if you line them up in that order, they spell, the first letter of each of those is A-C-A-P-E, and Legolas, the elf character in the show, wears a cape. A-C-A-P-E. Okay. <laughs> so, <A -C> <laughs> so, again, it's like, that won't help you remember create, but it'll give you the first letters, and so as long as you're thinking in that direction, and remember it's about the environment, hopefully that'll give you a little a little boost towards, you know, if you see, you know, in the question, it's talking about the environment, it's talking about creating a new blah, blah, blah then we can feel a little even more confident that it's like kind of leaning towards EHP, I think. Yeah. No. Hey, it sticks with me. I love it. <laughs> okay. All right. So I think the last model we've got here, we've got PEO, MOHO, EHP, and then occupational adaptation or OA. Mm -hmm. 
So with occupational adaptation, um, I find it a bit simpler to understand. And again, remember, they all kind of focus on that PEO triad. But with OA or occupational adaptation, um, it's all about the client mastering, right? Or having mastery over their performance. So the author or the theorist suggests that if your client does not show this desire for mastery during a task, it may not be because of lack of motivation like the moho suggests, um, but maybe they just cannot match the occupation you know, or the occupational demand with the occupational goal. So it's all about having your client engage in these occupations through practice um, and just through, you know, just engagement, you know, so that they can master, you know, the ability to be successful or, you know, for them to master independence. Totally. So we're thinking of like that ad adaptation and mastery as kind of the main stick out words. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's all about that adaptive response. And a lot of times we see that in SI, right, the pediatric model of SI. Um, so you really want your client to be able to adapt appropriately, you know, to the to the occupational demands. Definitely. And again, SI is a frame of reference. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I remember when I was in school, I'd be like, well, is it OA or is it SI then, right? Like that would be my thing. But it's it's not that. It's like, we're using OA and then we're focusing in more specifically with, with a frame of reference. Is that exactly. Okay. Exactly. It took me like five years to get that and school <laughs> only lasted three. So all right. So, um, so we were using the first letter of the other one. So we've got model human occupation M for men, moho men, EHP was elves. Sadly, dwarves is what we're thinking of for OA. So we can't use D, but we're going to spell dwarves a little odd. So we're going to spell it D-W-O-A-R-V-E-S. <laughs> so hopefully a little goofy of a spelling of dwarves, but that should, should hopefully that'll stick. So um, again, we're thinking of adapt, like adaptive response, adaptive capacity, and then also mastery. So dwarves in Lord of the Rings and in almost any other story you find them in, they tend to live underground. They like hollow out these mountains and they like, did like you know they mine for gold and gemstones and all this stuff right so they're well adapted to living underground and they are considered master craftsmen so they love to like find this stuff and they make these like beautiful gems or or whatever right they're these master craftsmen and they're adapted living underground so hopefully dwarves d-w-o-a-r-v-e-s we're thinking of occupational adaptation o-a adapting to live underground and their master craftsmen because to remind us of adaptive response, adaptive capacity, and then also mastery of a certain occupation. Right. Right. No, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> cool. All right. So I think we got, um, the main models here. Those four tend to be the ones that we are kind of the most focused on mm -hmm. that we're most likely to even show up on the exam. Yeah. Mm -hmm, exactly. Those are ones that most students ask me about. Okay, cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the, the three frames of reference here that we think are going to be the most commonly, um, some of the more difficult and also the most commonly found on questions on the exam. Okay. So I think we've got, what are the three we picked out? Is it cognitive behavioral therapy and then behavioral therapy mm -hmm. and then uh, psychodynamic? Those yes. three frames of reference? Yes. Those are okay. the ones most students um, ask about. Okay. Would you want to hit us, uh, start us off with cognitive behavioral therapy? 
Yes, so cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I think a lot of times students kind of confuse this frame of reference with the behavioral frame of reference, but they are totally different. So with cognitive behavioral therapy, I always like to think of the cognitive piece and the behavioral piece, right? So I'm looking at cognition, I'm looking at thoughts and feelings that impact behavior. So a lot of times our clients have these distorted thoughts and feelings, you know, about certain situations and that results in a specific behavior or maladaptive behavior, right? So if we can address those thoughts and feelings by identifying those thoughts and feelings using like thought records and stuff like that, address those thoughts and feelings that they have about these situations and change those distorted thoughts or feelings, then we should get a better behavior or a more adaptive behavior or a more appropriate behavior. So what we do is we have them identify and we have them understand the behavioral response and then we help them problem solve alternative ways to behave or respond. Cool. All right. So I think, um, so the other one was like the mnemonics we've used up until now were very much about like generals, right? So if you are familiar with almost any uh, fantasy story, then they probably made at least enough sense to get by. For the other three of these, they're actually a little more focused on a specific character. So if you haven't seen Lord of the Rings, like Kim, you poor, poor souls, um, then watch it. Take take three hours out of your study time and just watch it. Call it studying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. Um, there will still be some good ways to remember this, and you can kind of adapt it to something that suits you a little better. But um, these are associated with more specific individual characters in the show. Um, so, the, But the most important thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is that I think the name, actually, if you like pay attention to it, of the model, kind of gives away one of the major ideas behind it, which is that cognition or thoughts affect behavior. So we're focusing on that sort of primary thing, the cognition, in order to hopefully get these um, results that we're looking for in the client's behavior. So um, the character that we're going to use to remember this one is Gollum, who is this creepy little guy, and he's got a lot of like mental trauma to deal with. Um, in the movie, he's actually depicted as almost having like a split personality disorder kind of thing, even though TV and movies never really give you like a fair like representation of what that really looks like but it's there's a one scene in particular where he's having like all the other characters are asleep and he's having a conversation with himself and so the camera like cuts back and forth like he's looking left and right and he's got these two halves of himself kind of having this conversation and at one point the sort of um more like good-natured side of himself tells the the more difficult side of himself that gives him all these bad thoughts and impressions to go away and never come back um, and then from that point on until, you know, for a little while, he's a much more reasonable character. He's like a very sort of gray character. He's like, he helps the good guys for a while and then he ends up sort of, things go bad and it doesn't end well with him. Okay. But for a time, he is able to sort of like address these, um, this like paranoia he has and this distrust and sort of just allow himself to like interact well with the other characters in the movie daily activities exactly yeah so he's he's got he has a pretty good time for a little while playing nice and then eventually it doesn't work out but so that's um cognitive behavioral therapy again to kind of address these like thought distortions or these um difficult sort of cognitive elements that are influencing your behavior negatively right 
Right. So whatever we can do to help them change those distorted thoughts, you know, so that they can be able to participate in everyday activities. Yep. Definitely. Can you give us some ideas of like what, so what are some like treatment ideas of what CBT would probably encourage? So one of the most common ones that I see that a lot of students are kind of confused about when they see like an answer choice mentioning it is like a thought record. And pretty much a thought record is, you know, it's like a piece of paper with different columns on it. And your client will be responsible for identifying the different thoughts that they're having throughout the day around certain situations. And what they do is they will write down the thought and they will write down the um, the response that they had, the behavioral response. And then in the, an additional column, will they will write down an alternative response. Right. And of course, initially, you're going to help them problem solve different different alternative responses. Um, but eventually they should be able to independently start engaging in the alternative, more appropriate responses. Um, you can also kind of stop and check your client throughout an activity. So if you're engaging in a difficult activity with your client, you can kind of stop them right in the middle of the activity and say, hey, what are you thinking? Right. Because I notice you're getting frustrated. And so instead of allowing them to you know, build on that frustration and essentially maybe they might do something maladaptive. We stop them. We have them check themselves right then and there to come up with that alternative response. Cool. So kind of, again, identifying those um, like thoughts and feelings that are ultimately influencing how they react to something. Right. Right. And trying cool. to stop those thoughts and feelings right then and there so that we can, you know, have them be more appropriate and more cool. successful. So running with the the Gollum thing, so Gollum is like the name of like his evil side per se, and then his good side is actually the name that he had a long, long time ago, and it's Smeagol, which is a really fun name <laughs> to say. So um, I would imagine a good way to remember this type of thing would be like Gollum is journaling, and he writes down all of his Gollum thoughts, which are all these bad, like very paranoid um, mean thoughts, and then he replaces them with Smeagol thoughts, right? So then it's like, oh no, my friends are nice to me and stuff like that. Right. So right. Um, again, identifying these distortions and then finding a you know a better, a more adaptive sort of response to that. Exactly. Cool. All right. Um, so let's move on to the next one. We've got the. So is it? How do you call it? Is it the behavioral frame of reference? The behavioral. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The behavioral frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with behavioral frame of reference, and again, a lot of people kind of get this confused with the CBT or the cognitive behavioral, but notice how cognition is not a part of the word, right, or the phrase. So with behavioral frame of reference, right, we're really looking at behaviors, okay, these poor maladaptive behaviors. And the theory suggests that if your client is engaging in such awful behaviors that they're unable to participate or they're not available for learning, Right. So our job is to come in, our job and other professionals jobs, of course, is to come in and see how we can eliminate behaviors or how we can reinforce certain behaviors so that our client can be available, you know, to learn and to participate. So we use, you know, I mean, there's tons of techniques that we can use, but. Um, you know, you can use timeout systems, you can use punishment systems, you can use reward charts, um, you can, you know, you just want to support the good behavior and you want to eliminate the bad behavior, even if you're just ignoring the bad behavior so that this, this client, and notice I don't only say this child because it's, we can extend it to adults as well, but so that they can stop engaging in maladaptive behaviors. Cool. 
So, and then I was reading in some of the notes, and I think like some of the words that it specifically mentioned that I assume are pulled from the literature are were like fortifying behaviors and extinguishing behaviors. Are those words that might pop up on questions? Yeah, so definitely extinguishing behaviors. I haven't necessarily heard of fortifying, but I'm, you know, that doesn't mean it's not there. Um, but definitely like reinforcement, um, eliminating. Um, there's different strategies you can use, like modeling positive behaviors. Um, you can use like desensitization. You can use role playing to show, you know, more positive behaviors, um, simulated activities, um, behavior contracts, which is one that most students might not necessarily think is a strategy, but a behavior contract. Um, is something that where your student kind of tells you, I mean, your client tells you, you know, hey, this is the behavior I'm going to engage in. Like we're, we're signing off on this behavior. I'm going to be good, you know. So it's just different, different strategies you can use. Okay, cool. So um, to go back to the Lord of the Rings things here. Uh, so for behavioral, we're going to use that first letter again. So B, uh, <laughs> I think the most memorable character from the movies with a name that starts with B is not like a named character. It's like one of the villains. It's like a big monster and it's called the Balrog. So if anybody has seen the movie, but is not super familiar with all the names, it's in the first movie. It's like this big fire demon thing that shows up when they're underground. And then it's uh, Gandalf says his favorite, like the wizard Gandalf says his like, line that's made it all over the internet which is like you shall not pass right to this big monster thing and then the monster ends up getting the best of them and they both fall and die but <laughs> but but <laughs> not to anyway <laughs> i don't want to give kim any spoilers in case she watches the movie here but uh so the balrog is again this big like fiery demon thing it's very visually memorable so i would just google it if you're not familiar with the movies if this doesn't come to mind like just google it it's spelled b-a-l-r-o-g and like it's like anyway if you picture this guy doing something it's going to stick in your brain so um again so behavioral we're thinking of the balrog and one of the things so like fortifying or supporting good behaviors was one thing so they were kind of having this standoff with him at the bridge and gandalf was trying to like keep him from crossing so they were trying to like fortify or like support this bridge right mm -hmm. they also he's like this big fiery thing he's like made of like rock and fire and so they talk about extinguishing bad behaviors so again like trying to extinguish these flames not let him like burn out of control Right. Um, and then for the rest of these things we've talked about, again, like these behavior contracts, um, like different ways to sort of like deal with uh, clients who are having these bad behaviors, trying to help them get better. I just think it's hilarious to like think of doing all those things with the Balrog, right? Like he's sitting like if, if you think of like a pediatric patient, mm -hmm. like you've got some kids like sitting around playing a board game and then one of them like loses and like flips the table or something like imagining the Balrog sitting there playing like shoots and ladders and be like, Oh dang it. And like lighting the whole thing on fire. And then it's like, no, no, no. Like right. you said we wouldn't do that. Exactly. Right. Like just you signed a contract. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or so, we could completely take, you know, the activity away, you know, and just say, Hey, you, you know, your response was not appropriate. So we're going to have to take this away. And that's kind of like trying to extinguish that behavior. Totally. So anyway, I just think it's so funny, like having the Balrog be like that kid who is told that he's not doing it. like, oh, man, like I just <laughs> thought that was hilarious. 
So that's how we're going to try to remember the behavioral one is just disciplining our, our Balrog here and supporting him to, to do these better behaviors. Um, all right. Is that, have we covered that one? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to, uh, let's go into the last one here. Psychodynamic. Psychodynamic. So a lot of students will ask me like is psychodynamic and psychoanalytic the same thing um, and they're not necessarily the same thing but psychodynamic is an extension of the psychoanalytic frame of reference so they have very similar um, theories and suggestions when it comes to practice so not exactly the same but you can kind of look at them as um, pretty similar so when we think about psychodynamic so psychodynamic is one of the few frames of references that really gives us a means of supporting and understanding our clients' feelings, thoughts, and emotions, okay? So a lot of times, you know, we're responding to the physical aspects of our clients, but when we have clients who may have, um, you know, mental health illnesses or even physical illnesses where they're grieving or there's injury involved, we need to be able to attend to the emotional parts of our client. So the theory suggests that with psychodynamic or why it was founded was because all of these unconscious thoughts and conflicts in your head take up negative energy. And if all of that negative energy is in your head, then you're not able to participate in more satisfying activities. So that's why we engage our clients in activities that allow them to release emotions. So psychodynamic is all about releasing emotions or freeing up all of those thoughts and conflicts in your head so that you can invest in more satisfying, purposeful activities. So a lot of times we engage in these projective activities and projective activities just gives your client a way to express themselves. So it can be through drawing, music, art, dancing, poetry, photography, you know, it can be through anything that just allows you to express and release so that we can move on to a more purposeful life. Cool. Okay. So it sounds like expression is sort of like a hot word there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, for psychodynamic, and again, I know it's spelled P-S-Y, but the first sound is that S sound. So um, again, a bit of a stretch, and it's specific characters, but we're talking about Sam and Frodo, who are two hobbits, who are some of the main characters. Again, it's a little more specific, um, but they are some of the main characters in the show. They have one of the hardest times throughout the movie. They just have a really bad time. Um, but they're very important. And at the end, they sort of return back to where they came from. They go back to their old lives. But Frodo in particular had such a bad experience with the whole thing that he still has a lot of trauma, um, a lot of sort of this leftover baggage that's still affecting him. Um, and how he deals with it is, again, like at least in the movie, I don't know if this is included in the books, but they're based on books, The Lord of the Rings. And Frodo is depicted as the as the character who actually writes this book, right? So at the end, this character who saw it all is the one who puts it down on paper as a way of kind of coping with this horrible thing he had to go through, um, this big journey. He, yeah, records it on paper in, as a way of sort of coping with it. Right, and that's um, one of the strategies that, you know, we use with the psychodynamic frame of reference, journaling, you know, so that you can just kind of get it all out on paper, get it out of your mind and onto paper, you know, totally. Suggest that, you know, some clients are unable to free up that negative energy on their own. So that's when we come in and support them and help them get it out through different activities. So, yeah, that's that sticks with me. Sam and Frodo. 
<laughs> and then also just as like a little bonus, like throughout the whole thing, Sam and Frodo, like Sam is a little bit more healthy while they're going through it. He's having a less hard time than Frodo. And he keeps trying to remind him of like, oh, remember like the Shire, which is where they both come from, which is a really nice place. And then uh, he tries to help Frodo like maintain a positive, a positive uh, view on the whole thing. Also, if you don't know anything about Lord of the Rings, but you're a Game of Thrones fan, as a little quick aside, there's another character in Game of Thrones who's interestingly named Sam as well. And at the end of that show, he's the one who wrote down everything in a book. So if that, uh, anyway, if that helps and you're a, you're a GOT fan and not a Lord of the Rings fan, then um, go for that. But uh, so can I, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. So the journaling and like writing could I mean I'm seeing like again like the similarities I think are where people get Mm -hmm. stuck Mm -hmm. so if something's mentioned about like journaling I know we talked a little bit about like writing things down for CBT cognitive behavioral therapy and now again for psychodynamic what can we like tease out some of the things that would help us narrow it down to which one we might be referring to right that's a great um a great question so again with the cbt or the cognitive behavioral therapy you want to make sure you're journaling or you're writing down to identify certain distorted thoughts in order to problem solve and find alternative behaviors right or find a new way to respond so i need to see in the scenario or in the question where they're journaling or writing down certain things to identify those thoughts in order to change behavior versus if I'm doing journaling journaling using the psychodynamic um, frame of reference, I only want to see where they're journaling to express themselves, right? So they're writing down certain thoughts and feelings just to get them out, not necessarily to change a behavior or, you know, to change a response or to problem solve about anything, just to get it out and free up that negative, you know, space in their mind. Awesome. Sweet. Thank you. So, and then, yeah, for the other like expressive things to keep it in your head, you can picture these two little hobbits like doing a play or, you know, playing music or whatever, all these kind of expressive mediums, taking photography, um, painting to, to sort of express their, their, uh, negative feelings and try to move beyond those. Right. Okay. Well, um, I think we covered the main the main things here. Mission accomplished. That is incredible. That I I don't have an exact amount of time that that took. I can't see the timer here, but uh, suffice it to say, I spent a whole lot longer than that spinning my wheels trying to do it on my own. So, Kim, you are a a magician here. Thank you so a wizard would be the more. Appropriate. <laughs> um, thank you so much for uh, helping me out here and for helping um, my audience out with all this stuff. Of course. Course, and hopefully we can, you know, do more to kind of help clear up some of these, you know, concepts because again, it can be very challenging. A lot of things in OT, you know, that's the great thing about our field, right? So everything is so dynamic and like, you know, we we can be so creative. But with that being said, the founders of OT, right, they had a lot of different ideas and a lot of different theories, you know, and it's hard to kind of just pinpoint a theory to one activity. So I always tell my students, don't try to remember every single tedious little aspect about every single topic, right? But what is the general concept? What is one sentence for every frame of reference or one sentence for every occupation-based model that every time you see a scenario, it's going to at least help guide you to the correct answer? Totally. And now you've got one sentence and one really nerdy uh, character here. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, th- thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to working with you again in the future if we find another. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, where can people find you? So you can find me at www.tmpot.com, and that stands for The Missing Piece OT. Or you can always shoot me an email at info at tmp. T- uh, info at tmpot.com or facebook tmpot cool you rock kim thanks so much for being on the show i really appreciate it thank you for having me thank you so much all right talk to you soon bye bye all right that's the show i hope you found it useful for a difficult difficult topic like frames of reference and uh hopefully we'll be having kim back on the show i think she's awesome If you have a chance to review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, that is very much appreciated. I love to hear your guys' comments. So thank you, thank you, thank you if you've already done it. You guys are awesome. Hang in there and we'll catch you next time. Last but not least, music this show was provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com.